the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm joined by Dan Senor. Dan is the host of the Call Me Back podcast. He returns. Good morning, Dan. It is great to see you. Happy New Year to you on this January 2nd. Thank you, Hugh. I don't know about a happy New Year. 2023 has been pretty rough for those in my world, in my corner of the world, uh, my family, my friends in Israel. But uh, I'm hoping at least for a happier Very well put. Dad, last night, the Fetching Mrs. Hugh and I had dinner with four friends, Toby and and Bob, who've been our friends forever. We met in the St. Petersburg um, Central Synagogue 10, 15 years ago. A couple of their friends, Dave and Marcy. Marcy has 100 relatives in Israel. Her grandfather escaped from Russia in 1918, went to Israel. The American Jewish community is so connected to Israel. And you, by the way, when you come to the West Coast, let me know. I'll try and set something up for anyone you want to talk to. But have you had an incredible outpouring of interest in Call Me Back as a result of 10-7? Yeah, in ways that I could uh, not have possibly imagined. Um, the the number of downloads, uh, unique downloads since we since October 7th has gone up, I don't know, five, six, seven times. My, my uh, producer, Alon, tracks the data. Pretty religiously, I don't. I stay away from looking at the data because I don't want it to, um, you know, influence. I don't want to get in my in the head. In my head as I think about how to construct these conversations. But uh, but yeah, there's been there's been enormous interest. It's and I'll tell you, Hugh. I think it's for two reasons. One, I think the Jewish community in the diaspora has been rattled, has been shaken. Allies they once thought they had, particularly more in the among progressive Jews, they realize they don't have anymore. They're alone. And so they're looking for sources of information. They're looking for community. And I think our podcast has provided both. And then the the other group of people, I would say, are people who aren't necessarily Jewish or have been in, had any reason to be connected to Israel, but recognize the U.S. and Israel have shared values, in many respects have a shared history, certainly have shared strategic interests. And this, this Gaza-Israel war, this Hamas-Israel war, feels different than previous Israel wars in previous israel skirmishes whether on its northern border or the southern border this feels bigger it has regional implications it potentially has global implications recently on my podcast i had brett stevens on from the new york times where we talked about how do world wars actually start and you not to suggest that what's happening in the middle east is the beginning of a world war but there are these little flare-ups that draw in major powers. And certainly Moscow, Beijing, and Washington are all very involved in what's happening right now in the Middle East, which is basically, from a distance, one could demit, dis, diminish or dismiss as just a border dispute between, you know, the, at the Gaza-Israel border. But it feels much bigger to most people with good reason. And so I think it's drawn interest uh, in the podcast because we've been going two, three times a week since October 7th with Israelis on the ground explaining what's going on. Key point with Israelis on the ground. Dan, you have a very approachable way of doing an interview as well. It's not rushed. It's not cluttered. And you're very deliberate in listening and interrupting at the right time and asking the right question. I re-listened to your latest Aviv Reddick Gurry interview last night after dinner, just to prepare for today. 
and it struck me. I listened to Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein-Halevi. I listened to Yonit Rav, uh, what, Lenit Levy and Jonathan Friedland. Yonit Levy, yeah. Yeah, I listened yeah. to them all. But you, yours has brought home this, especially with Haviv. Everybody's going to funerals around the clock in Israel. And I, I believe Americans love their country the equal of any people in the world love their country. But Israelis might love Israelis more than any other people love each other. What do you think about that? It's a small country. It is, uh, it is a country where everybody knows everybody, or everybody's one degree removed from everybody. And there's a sense that particularly the October 7th massacre brought up the worst memories from Jews, even though Israel is a very diverse country. Over 70 nationalities are represented in Israel. So you have Jews from the United States and Europe. You have Jews from Iran, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Morocco, Turkey. You have Jews from the former Soviet Union. Um, So they've all, in a sense, lived these different histories, but they've all suffered from persecution no matter where they live. You have a Jew from Poland and a Jew from Baghdad. They've both lived under brutal repression for being Jews. And so October 7th touched a nerve for everybody in Israel, even though many of them have come from different places and have had different experiences. They, 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 they were all reminded about this, um, this hate towards Jews that has existed throughout our history and the lengths those people who hate will go to massacre, to extinguish, to exterminate Jews. That was October 7th, like touched a visceral nerve in ways that that just brought back memories and brutal history. And so in that sense, there's an added layer of the country feeling very unified and feeling together. And my my sister who lives in Jerusalem, who I just spoke to late last night, my time, early morning, her time. I mean, this is what she does. She goes to funerals. She goes to shivas, which are the seven-day mourning period for those families who have just lost a loved one. Um, Haviv, in our last episode of the podcast, said he's been to five funerals. That's actually, i got to be honest, Hugh, that's on the low end. Most most Israelis I know um, are, are going to many more. Uh, and it touches every walk of life. The CEO of one of the biggest high-tech companies in the country, his daughter was killed at the Nova Music Festival on October 7th. He's a billionaire. Uh, Lior Raz and Avi Sakharov, who are the co-creators of the television show Fauda. They're big deals in the television world globally. They have a big deal with Netflix. They, they're stars. Have, uh, uh, Lior Raz just got back from Malta shooting uh, a, a, a big film, uh, big, big, you know, um, Hollywood film in, in Malta. He just got back to Israel. Members of their crew from Fauda, from the production crew, have been killed. Uh, they're going to funerals. It's not... In the United States, most of our country is protected from military service and from war. As you know, it represents a minuscule percentage of the overall population. It's the opposite in Israel. Everyone in Israel is touched in some way, whether it's their own service, their children's service, a friends, a teachers, a shopkeepers, a brother. They're all touched by it. And so when 360,000 people out of a population of 9.1 million people are mobilized on top of those who are slaughtered on October 7th and on top of the hostages and on top of the rape survivors, everyone somehow knows someone. You know, I, I was listening at the beginning of the last episode to the discussion about Mitai, the uh, cousin of Haviv's wife, I believe, who was killed yeah. in action yeah. in Close Gaza. Yeah. 
And he sounds like, a, you know, you're talking about he looks like a bar mitzvah picture, uh, you know, 19 or 20 years old. These are young people. America took 7,000 casualties over 20 years. And you know that well, Dan, because you were with the uh, American, uh, 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 what do we call it, the authority, the coalition authority in Baghdad. Coalition you, authority in Iraq, yeah. yeah we, we react, and I, I know two people, one remove, who died among those 7,000. Two, much more connected to more, because I have a son, a son-in-law, and a, and a nephew on active duty. So I know a little bit, but nobody personally Everybody knows somebody personally in Israel, and that changes a country profoundly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so I worked in Iraq and I knew people who were killed. One person who worked particularly close with me when I was based in Baghdad named Lieutenant Colonel Chad Buring, uh, who was killed in the fall of 2003 with a with a uh, rocket attack against the uh, Al-Rashid Hotel in the Green Zone. Um, but but that was I, I wouldn't have known Chad Buring. Had I not been serving and right here's a, here I am living in New York City. I live a very, in some respects, a very sheltered uh, northeastern, uh, very comfortable life in New York City. Had I not been serving in Iraq, I wouldn't have known Chad Buring. Most of my peers, most people in my world over here in New York don't know anybody who serves in the military, let alone who's given their lives. Uh, Israel. Here's the thing. Because there's almost near universal service, Hugh. It, it, it breaks down socioeconomic barriers. So in the hull of a tank in Israel, you have the son of a billionaire and you have the son of a cab driver serving together. You have the son of someone who's very religious. And then you have the son. Uh, then you have someone in the, in the hull of the tank who's got tattoos and a ponytail and is hyper secular. They because they all have to serve. They have this shared experience. And, you know, you and I have talked previously about the politics of the country as divisive and polarizing as the politics of Israel can be. Unlike other countries in the West, I think the army, the military experience, that sense of service, the sense we're all in this together at all times, but especially after an event like October 7th, prevents the country from being torn apart. And Nitai, who's who's uh, Haviv's close family friend uh, who died. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at the photo of him, of Nitai at, at Haviv and, and his wife, Rachel's wedding. And he's the same age in that photo as one of my sons. And it gave me chills because it just um, I, I got to tell know, you, the what, other what, what, what breaks my heart is that they're like the next generation. That's they're the next generation of leaders. They're the next generation of contributors to the country. And to think so many of these lives are being lost. is just but Boy, they're going to be a hard nosed group. I'm going to come back with Dan during both breaks. We'll put it all on the podcast. We'll be back live on the 450 stations after the break. Stay tuned, America. Dan Senor's podcast is Call Me Back. His brand new book is... Uh, the genius of Israel. And if you really want to understand Israel, go get it. He also turned me on to Dan Gordis Israel, A Concise History of a Reborn Nation. Fabulous book. Get it all. I'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Back now with Dan Senor. Dan, I wanted to save this this comment for off air because I don't want people to hear it unless they're intentionally listening to podcasts. They will have already heard it on your. Everybody in the IDF is lying to their mother, father, or mo- or their wife or husband about the danger they're in. <laughs> I found that it's kind of funny, but it's also oh, not to worry about me. It's logistics. The food is bad. I'm I'm fine. And and uh, Mitai was in a in the front tank when he was killed. Everybody and the the paratrooper is not having lasagna in the back lines either. They're all on the front line. Gaza is a front line. Yeah, I mean Gaza is. I mean, here's the irony: Israel is, as you know, is a tiny country. So not only is its population small nine nine point one nine point two million, but geographically, it's the size of the state of Rhode Island. So if you look at Sterot, which is the the town on the most southern tip, southern part of the border of Israel, right by it. It's less than a mile from Gaza. There's a big thriving community. I've been there many times. I think you've said you've been down south in Israel before. Yeah, I've been in the desert, but I haven't, I haven't been down at the Gaza border. Okay. Okay. You, we have a chapter in our, in our new book. We have a chapter on steroid. It's, 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 a, it's a booming civilian middle class uh, a community. It's, it's, it's less than a mile from the Gaza border. Then you say, okay, well, that's on the border. What about the thriving cities like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Haifa? Okay, take Tel Aviv. It's the high tech center of the country. It's it's the most dynamic economic part of the country. It's the equivalent of New York City. It's uh, it's forty miles from the Gaza border. So so the idea like every part of the country a is the front line. I mean, you're not. T- it's like the difference as I said in our in our last episode of the podcast. It would be like after nine eleven. You know, if Manhattanites were told Al Qaeda planned nine eleven from Staten Island. And Staten Island is run by Al Qaeda. And oh, by the way, all of the Staten Island population has been indoctrinated by Al Qaeda. And now Manhattanites are said, okay, so what are you going to do about Staten Island? Are you just going to go make peace with Staten Island? You're going to learn how to live with a radicalized Staten Island being run by Al Qaeda? Not in a million years. That's what Israel is to Gaza. So, not only, Hugh, to your point, is anywhere you're serving in the country, you're basically on the front line. Most of those 360,000 troops who've been called up are actually in Gaza, not even inside Israel on the front line. They're in Gaza fighting. They're just lying to their Jewish mothers because they don't want to worry them. And, um, and, and the craziness, which is the point I tried to get home in this last drive home, this last episode of the podcast, the idea that Israel's being pressured to figure out its plan for who's going to govern Gaza after the war. Are you kidding me? Like, as though this is some simple thing. There's some quick fix. It literally would be saying to Manhattanites, yeah, Al-Qaeda was running Staten Island. But in a few weeks, we want you, Manhattan, to figure out how you're going to learn to live with Staten Island run by by Al-Qaeda. By the way, this is no no dig against Staten Island. I love Staten Island. This is just a it's, it's a it's Dan, were you in New York on 9-11? Uh, I was in New York uh, two days after 9-11. All right. When we come back from break, I want you to consider this as we as we pause. I think the big difference is that Americans saw the attack on 9-11 and thought there are a small group of people out there operating from a few bases in Afghanistan and we can stop them with TSA, et cetera. This is much larger and both proportionally and just in terms of number. There are so many fanatics in Hamas. We had no idea the level of depravity. And that's when you said they dialed up the fanaticism I don't know if they dialed up or if we just took the curtain back. I'm going to ask you that after the break. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back with Dan Senor, host of the Call Me Back podcast. Welcome back, America, to the worst pronounced Hebrew in the United States. That would be mine. I'm Hugh Hewitt. 
Dan Senor, though, can correct me. Uh, Dan, prior to 73, there was a conception in Israel that they could not be surprised. They were. I wonder if Fauda and other shows contributed to a new conception that is now shattered, that they would never be surprised and that the number of terrorists who could enter into the country could never get larger than the the Hanak Tel Aran attack on the Haifa Highway or the other attacks in 73 that you detailed yesterday with Habib. Do you think that was an illusion that spread out over Israel? Yeah, I think the combination, I think that there, there are many uh, misconceptions in the conceptia and the concept, uh, one of which was that uh, Hamas in Gaza wanted to govern rather than to wage war. There was a sense that yeah, their 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 rhetoric is toxic. Their rhetoric is is um, radical. But at the end of the day, they they have a population of two point two million people to run, and that's what they're focused on. Not waging war against Israel is waging war against Israel would be a distraction from developing and running Gaza. That was one big misconception. The second big misconception was the biggest threat to Israel from Gaza were rockets not terrorists crossing the border. So if you look at the bomb shelters, so almost every Israeli home has a bomb shelter, apartment buildings, homes. I mean, my family members all have bomb shelters in their buildings or their homes. This is a common thing. And and people in Israel are trained from a very young age how to get into the bomb shelter, depending on where in the country you are. When a rocket is launched from Gaza or from the north, you have, if you're in the center of the country, you have about 12 or 15 minutes to get to your bomb shelter. If you live in the south of the country in Gaza and in, in um, Sterot, you have 15 seconds. Uh, to get into the bomb shelter. But these, but it is very common to know to run to the bomb shelters. None of the bomb shelters had locks on the doors. I mean, that's very revealing, and that's a very powerful symbol, very powerful metaphor. Why is that? On October 7th, when the Hamas terrorists came in, all these kids, for instance, at the Nova Music Festival or on these kibbutzim, they ran into their bomb shelters. That's what they were trained to do. And that was played right into Hamas's hands because they could then throw grenades into the bomb shelter. They could just walk into the bomb shelter, open the door and just start shooting and slaughtering people live. And people say, well, wait a minute, why weren't there locks in the bomb? Why couldn't we close the doors and lock the doors? Because the whole national security concept, conceptualization of the threat was we just need to be in the bomb shelters for when the rockets hit. No one ever thought about hand to hand combat. And terrorists actually going door to door and slaughtering people live the way those 2000 terrorists tried to do and did do on October 7th. And that there are so many, Hugh, there are so, I'm going to start dedicating in, in my podcast in the future some episodes to the lessons learned. And what I'm trying to do right now in the podcast is focus on educating people on the history of what Israel has been dealing with, because I find there's such a uh, deficiency in the level of knowledge that regular, even smart, intelligent people have about the history. So what I'm trying to focus on now is just the basic history. And then I'm going to pivot to what Israel got wrong and the lessons learned. And that speaks exactly to what you're talking about, which is this misconception. You know, Dan, you introduced me to Daniel Gordis, and I got his book, Israel, The Rebirth of a Nation Reborn. Concise history of a of a nation reborn. I've listened to it two and a half times because I knew everything from seventy three forward, and I knew it pretty well. I didn't know much about forty eight to seventy three. I read the Lionsgate by Stephen Pressfield a little bit about that. I knew nothing about Theodore Herzl to nineteen forty eight. I didn't know about the pogroms. I didn't know about. Yeah, I just don't know this. I know about the Holocaust. I'm an average smart American reader of these things. So the the great benefit of Call Me Back are the people you bring on. 
Haviv is not my age. He's not he's not anybody of your listeners age. He's a young man with young kids. He's got to live in Israel for 50 years. He, they, it's got to have changed everyone, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, look, one of the th- Haviv is a very special person, as you know, and I know you've had him on. Uh, I, I, he and I become quite close. He's uh, he's special because he's he's obviously deeply intelligent. He's got a he's a sharp analyst, and he's got a tremendous sense of history. And he's a soulful person. He's living his life in Israel. He's raising his children in Israel. He has family members serving on the front lines. He himself has served. Um, and so we try to do this weekly conversation uh, to to almost be like an audio journal for both of us. Since October seventh, we recorded our first episode of these weekly war check-ins since on October 8th. And I would say his biggest frustration, which he gets into in our most recent episode, the one you're referring to, and even our previous ones is he says, the Palestinians don't have to love me. They don't have to be Zionists. They don't have to believe in Israel, but they need to understand me. That's his big point. And what they need to understand is I'm not going anywhere. And I'm raising my kids to understand they're not going anywhere. This is their country. So you 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 can be as angry about that fact as you are, but you have to deal with that fact. And so much of the palace talk about Israel's misconception. Let's talk about the Palestinians' misconception. Their conceptual conceptia. Their misconception was that they could, with enough pressure and violence and intimidation and October seventh slaughtering and rape, they could drive the Jews out. They could go somewhere else. And Haviv's point is, where where are we going? We got uh, yeah, don't you, don't go. you think they think America when he said that they think you're, that all Israelis are going to go to America and that's not going to happen. They built this amazing country. They're not going to leave it. Right. Uh, when we come back from right, break, right. I'm going to talk with Aviv for four more minutes about the fact that Israel has never publicly acknowledged being a nuclear power. But that's got to be in the background of some people's minds. And we're about the Israeli Supreme Court decision, about which I have no opinion. It's not my court. I don't know their law. I teach American con law. I'd be happy to give you my opinions on American con law. But Americans holding forth on Israeli con law, don't listen to them. I'll be right back with Dan Sinor. Stay tuned. Back for a quick closing segment with Dan Sinor. Dan, uh, again, the, the, the podcast is such a public service. It's called po- Call Me Back a couple of times a week. I wish you had more time, but I know you got a day job. But I also want to talk yeah. to you about the fact that Israel's a nuclear power, at least I understand it to be. They never admit that. That's part of what I don't think the Sunni Arab states have managed to communicate to Hamas. Before Israel ever goes down, like the movie or the, the, the Broadway show, uh, Golda's Balcony, the temple weapons go up. They're not going to go out quietly. Uh, and if they ever go out, that, that do you think that the Sunni Arab world has communicated that to Hamas? I think so. Israel, as you said, has never publicly acknowledged that it is a uh, a nuclear power, but it is well known uh, that it is. And I think with Israel's deepening ties, with Jerusalem's deepening ties with Riyadh and 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 Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and other countries and Cairo, and I mean, I think these countries understand that Israel's a nuclear power, and I think Iran understands uh, that Israel's a nuclear power. I think there's a reason why the regional actors since 1973 have not the regional actors, meaning the state the state actors. Uh, have not waged another war at Israel, A, because they believe Israel knows how to fight big conventional wars, and they know Israel has most likely uh, this nuclear capability, uh, which is why the big regional powers, Iran really, 
have chosen to, to pressure Israel through proxies, through Hamas, through Palestinian Islamic Jihad, through Hezbollah, and now through the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, they're relying on proxies because even if you have a nuclear capability, and unless you're willing to strike the source, Iran, of the funding and the arming of the uh, proxies, it's, uh, uh, these proxies are much harder to deal with. And Israel, as we've seen now, has had, increasingly less so now since October 7th, but has historically had a hard time dealing with these proxies. I think the, the mask is off. Uh, there's no there's no neat and tidy way to deal with these proxies. And I think that there's a consensus across the Israeli political spectrum now, across the political spectrum, from the hard right all the way to the hard left, that uh, that you talked. I mean, I talked to my Israeli friends who are literally on the high, hard, way hard left. You people I've never had an agreement with about Israeli national security policy in years. They all sound like they're singing from the same song sheet, that they have to do whatever they have to do with to crush Hamas, period, full stop. All right, last question. I don't think the Israeli Supreme Court issue will make a dent in American politics. I think Joe Biden's increasing calamitous policy towards Israel, especially the Houthis, will. And I expect the Chicago Convention to be reminiscent of 1968, which you won't remember, but which I do. This is dividing the American left in a way that we have not seen in my lifetime since the Vietnam War. Do you expect that to deepen? We have one minute, Dan Senor. Uh, look, I think uh, the Supreme Court issue, which I think is basically done for now because the Israeli uh, Supreme Court just struck it down in, a, in an eight to seven vote. But it actually, there was a there was another vote in the in the decision, which was a 12 to three vote um, that would just narrow the reasonableness clause, which was this last piece of the Supreme Court reform of the of the judicial reform. I think the country is now consumed with war. It has a war to fight. They're not focused on judicial reform. If anyone in the U.S. wants to start focusing on judicial reform in Israel, it's preposterous. It's a domestic Israeli issue. Israel's a vibrant democracy. They work through their issues. Let them work it out. American politicians shouldn't be mucking around in domestic affairs of an ally at any time, especially during an existential war. But what about the divide on the American left? Will it show up in Chicago? I have a feeling it will, Hugh. I think uh, I what, what what we are seeing right now. I mean, I just in New York last night, in the last couple of days, what's happening at JFK Airport? The airport's been totally shut down basically because because these pro Palestinian protesters, I, the invading. Space. I've got to stop you there. We have talked about that. I'm going to talk about it with Senator Cotton right now about getting the FBI on that. Dan Senor, call me back. Thank you for the service that you do. Appreciate your taking time with me. Thank you. Appreciate it, Hugh. Thank you. Back America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Bethany Mandel joins me. Happy 2024 to you, Bethany. I hope you had a great New Year's Eve and the start to a great 2024. I, I mean, I haven't slept since, so it's just continuing from 2023 right into 2024. Very good. on my pajamas, raring to go. All right. I want to read to you a post on X yesterday. East Rutherford, New Jersey, a Jewish family of four, including a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old, faced verbal and physical assault at the American Dream Mall, East Rutherford. The 16-year-old daughter, donning an IDF sweatshirt, endured offensive screams such as, you're a whore, your mother is a whore, your grandmother is a whore. The aggressor, fueled by hostility, persistent in yelling, free Palestine. They got in their face in the second video. The uh, looks like a young teen or a, an older teen or a young adult. Uh, assaults physically, it's a battery because she slaps the phone out of the mother's hand. How frequent do you think such things are? So I, the American Dream Mall is 
first of all, the worst place in America. It's so awful. But there are so many Jews that go there because so much of the um, food court is kosher. So the people who went to do this were looking for a fight. They're looking for Jews to scream at. Um, in Teaneck, which is one of the most heavily Jewish towns in America, yesterday also, there was uh, traffic going through the main drag of all kosher restaurants down. I think it was Queen Anne. And they stopped traffic and they had Palestinian flags and they were screaming at people outside of kosher restaurants, outside of supermarkets. This is an intimidation tactic. They're going to heavily Jewish areas and they are trying to scare Jews. Now, uh, I had dinner last night with uh, the Feshim Institute and four of our friends who are um, West Coast Jews who do not feel the same kind of omnipresent pressure that I think East Coast Jews do. And I do think I talked to a Chabad rabbi uh, in Southern California as well. They've only run into a couple of things in the schools, not the sort of things we saw at Kennedy Airport in New York yesterday. You think it's an East Coast, West Coast thing? I don't, because in Los Angeles, a man was murdered on the streets. And in Los Angeles, very frequently, we have um, we have vandalism outside of kosher supermarkets and kosher restaurants. Um, I think that there is a, a larger concentration of Jews in the New York, New Jersey area. And so I think more happens there. Um, but if, if West Coast Jews think they're immune, which I don't think a lot do, um, they're in for a rude awakening. And I don't, but I, I, I truly think that there's a lot of California Jews who understand what's going on here because of that murder in Los Angeles two months ago. Now, would you expect the FBI to have opened up a task force on anti-Jewish violence in the United States by this point and send out bulletins like we occasionally get on? And I don't mind getting, you know, right wing yeah. white supremacist stuff. It comes out from the FBI. I don't like going after traditional Catholics because they go to Latin mass. But I do think maybe it would be useful to let people know they can be prosecuted for the infringement of civil rights. Yeah, I mean, and also just I, I think that would be wonderful, obviously, but I think that just enforcing the laws that we currently have on the books that all of these Hamas sympathizers in America are are breaking would be really nice. New York yesterday, you just referenced it, what happened at JFK Airport. They were launching balloons into the oh air goodness, while planes yes. were taking off and landing. That is that is domestic terrorism. There was a city councilwoman, Vicky Palladino, who tweeted um, that they're using violent tactics again and again. They've not only closed down an international airport, but they very well could have taken down an airliner. What are we going to do about it? These people organize in the open and are, and are crystal clear about their intent to break the law. Where is the FBI? Why why aren't the organizers being arrested and charged with conspiracy? Why aren't their corporate and nonprofit paymasters facing RICO investigations? Why aren't the foot soldiers being tracked with cell phone data and charged with terrorism? We've seen that they can do it. They did it with January 6th, folks. It's time to do it here. And I don't understand why not. Well, I think it's political. Michigan is, is on the mind yeah. of Democrats. It's completely political. And I don't think Christopher Ray has an answer for this, but I don't know that it's been act, uh, asked and answered squarely. Yeah, no, it's absolutely political. And, and they're afraid of angering the, the younger generation of voters who skew more pro-Palestine. But they have to understand that what we're facing here is terrorism. And we don't get the the uh, benefit of thinking that, you know, Hamas, what what they did on October 7th stays in Israel. It doesn't. We have people who are walking through the streets of America right now wearing Hezbollah banners on their heads. These are wannabe terrorists who are cosplaying terrorists and they are 
acting in a terrorist manner, especially at JFK yesterday, but across the United States. It's time to take it seriously. And I don't think that they will until there are more deaths. You know, there is a stupidity problem here. I'm going to talk with Dan Sinor about this after the break. Bethany, I want to close by this. The folks who are walking around wearing Hamas bandanas are frequently LGBTQ friendly, if not a member of the LGBTQ community. Do they have any idea what Hamas believes? No, they don't. And, and I think that they are they are in for a rude awakening. And I would love to start a GoFundMe and send all of them on a free vacation to Gaza City. I'm totally in favor of that. And they can get the experience of being LGBT with their flag and try to hold a pride parade in the middle of Gaza right now. I, I beg them to do so. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, but it is. It's TikTok is what it is. And we'll talk about that another time. Bethany Mandel on X. Her Twitter account is... Bethany Shondark. Thank you, Bethany. Generalissimo, uh, did you blow your mind? PhDWeightLoss.com 2024 resolutions, or did you keep them over the weekend? Uh, I did not blow the resolutions. I actually, between Christmas and New Year's, lost about six or seven pounds and probably put on a pound and a half uh, celebrating New Year's, but back on the beam today and working my way back to pre-holiday weight. Now, a lot of people will be using this weekend to get their resolutions in order if they call 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. They'll be connected to My PhD Weight Loss. They'll get hooked up with a counselor. They'll get on the program. Dwayne lost 50 pounds, what, 16 months ago. It's been off for 14. It's been off over, I guess it took two, three months to lose it. Because it works. It works. 13 months at its target weight. You can do that too. MyPhDWeightLoss.com for you in 2024-864-644-1900. Welcome back, America. As I said at the beginning of the show, we are 13 days away from the Iowa caucus. Three weeks away from the New Hampshire in the primary, first in the nation primary. And David Drucker is with the dispatch. I don't know when he's going to Iowa, but David, what are you hearing about Iowa? Is there any move on the ground that would suggest Donald Trump's in any kind of trouble there at all? Not according to my sources. I'll be there next week. I'll be there through the dura- you know, for the duration once I get there. Um, look, my, my sources have told me that they just don't see any scenario, at least as of today, in which Donald Trump doesn't win Iowa. Uh, people are a little bit more circumspect about New Hampshire, not a lot circumspect, but a little bit more. And, and we've seen polling there to back that up, that you know, maybe this could be competitive. But but Iowa right now uh, looks like Donald Trump's to lose. And look, he's running a very professional conventional race in Iowa with commit to caucus events. Um, obviously, Chris Lasavita, his campaign manager, and Susie Wiles, his other top advisor, are old school, experienced Republican hands, the sort of um, advisors Trump did not have in 2016 when he ended up losing in Iowa. Things can break late there. It's not that that uh, Ron DeSantis doesn't have crowds, but, you know, crowds in early primary states are like people sort of going to preseason sporting events. Right. It, It doesn't necessarily mean mean anything, but people like to see the show. Governor DeSantis did do the full Grassley, so he went to all 99 Iowa caucuses. 
Nikki Haley, according to a story in New Hampshire Journal this morning, which people are reading a lot this time of the year, did the full John McCain, more than 100 town halls. And that's a lot of questions from a lot of Granite Staters. She's close to 40 percent, according to State Rep Mike Moffat, a retired professor, former Marine Corps officer. And he says she got a chance to pull this off. Now, Chris Christie's not getting out. And a Chris Christie vote is a vote that doesn't go to Nikki Haley. A Vivek vote is one that doesn't go to Donald Trump. Do you think either of those two will get out of the way before the 23rd? Well, look, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to Chris Christie about this for the past several months, and he, he just there's not any inclination. He does not. He's not inclined to drop out before New Hampshire votes. I would say the exception to that would be if either DeSantis or Haley won in Iowa, which we just don't see happening. If that happened, I think he would reconsider. But we don't see that happening. And I think, you know, Nikki Haley's I don't know if you call it a gaffe or, or just a, a you know, a, a self-inflicted wound last week where she answered that that story about the Civil War um, in a very inartful way. Um, I, I don't know that it necessarily costs her support with voters per se, but it was more evidence for Chris Christie that he doesn't need to get out of his race, that he shouldn't get out of this race. And the reason this matters so much, of course, you as you alluded to, is if you're a Christie voter and Christie's not there, you're almost assuredly, if you're going to vote, going to vote for Nikki Haley in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, if you get out, it's possible you go vote for Donald Trump, possibly uh, Ron DeSantis. I, I don't know that Vivek gets out, but he might get out after Iowa. He might get out right before Iowa. It's, it's a really he's running a really strange race. He clearly has flatlined, at least according to every piece of data that we have seen. He's stopped advertising on television. I guess there was a limit to how much of his own money he wanted to spend. Um, but he's he's going after the non-traditional, non-traditional voter. I mean, not just a Perot voter, but a sort of somebody who, who would never vote. Look, he should and never so have appeared really on the Alex what Jones his, show. He should never have done it. And that well, nobody of, should appear on the Alex Jones show, but the precedent has been set. And so yeah. he is doing everything he saw Donald Trump do. It's just that people are not giving him the latitude that they gave Trump. Now, and the difference is Alex Jones and Sandy Hook case from then till now, not just being out there, but being out there beyond the pale. Let me talk a little bit about the primaries. I see it, David. There's, it's Trump, not Trump. And so if Chris Christie gets 6 percent, Nikki Haley gets 39 and Donald Trump gets 43, does Christie take a hammer from the party or future potential TV contract or anything like that? If he is the gap that prevents the upset, that prevents the one on one that people are looking for the following. I want to make sure I get my South Carolina date correctly is um, well, Nevada comes up first on February, South Carolina on February 24th. Yeah, remember, by the way, Nevada has a caucus and a primary. Nikki Haley's on the primary ballot, not on the caucus ballot. Donald Trump is on the caucus ballot, not on the primary ballot. Um, but you're right, South Carolina, February 23rd. Listen, I, I just think it all comes down to this. Nikki Haley has to win in New Hampshire because she needs a lot of momentum heading into South Carolina, where Donald Trump is extremely well regarded by Republican primary voters and the favorite to win, despite the fact that Nikki Haley is a former two-term governor, at least voted twice, left in the middle of her second term to serve at the U.N. under in, in Trump's cabinet. I don't know that Christie is really penalized only for this reason. Nobody at this point, actually, I shouldn't say nobody. Many people at this point expect that this is Donald Trump's nomination to lose. 
And many people have thought that increasingly since early last, since early, since the early summer, <laughs> this year, last year, summer of 2023. So I don't know that they're going to look at Christie as, oh, wait, we won this thing. We had this thing won. But, you know, you messed it all up. I, I just don't know that they're going to look at it like that. Uh, when when uh, your old colleague shows up, Byron York, I'm going to ask him about signal versus noise. I think the slavery issue was noise. The signal is Trump, not Trump. And who is the not Trump voter? We'll see. I'm not even sure that it's big enough. Even if it is Nikki Haley alone. The former president's campaign looks more and more like a, re, a, a Richard Nixon 68 campaign. David M. Drucker on X. Thank you, my friend. Welcome to the new year. First live broadcast of 2024. First interview with Byron York. He of the Washington Examiner writes a daily political column and, of course, Fox News contributor. Happy New Year, Byron. Good to have you back. Good morning. Happy New Year to you, Hugh. Uh, Byron, I want to start by talking about Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellow's decision to strike Donald Trump from the ballot in Maine. It was if the former president needed any more momentum in Iowa, New Hampshire, I think <laughs> Shanna Bellows gave it to him. Did she not? Yeah. And this this was kind of the, the scenario that um, a lot of people feared that you'd have kind of a, a rogue secretary of state do it, you know, in Colorado. Democrats wanted the Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, to just do it on her own. And she said no. And most secretaries of state across the country, including Democrats, have thought, boy, it'd be great to disqualify Donald Trump. But I don't think I'm going to climb out on that limb all by myself. So uh, Griswold waited for a lawsuit that was filed by a Washington anti-Trump group. They got some local plaintiffs in Colorado, and then they did kind of a quickie trial on that lawsuit, and then she used the lawsuit verdict to go to the Supreme Court, and then um, uh, then she had a court decision. In Maine, you have the Secretary of State just do it on her own. Secretary and, of State is not elected, by the way, in Maine, and Shanna Bellows is not a lawyer. She does, however, say this in a uh, October of 2021 C-SPAN video. This is Maine Secretary of State Shannon Bellows, cut number three. Well, what Secretary Griswold just said and named is something that was unimaginable two years ago or 10 years ago, and that is election sabotage. It is a crystal clear example of what's happening all across the country. So we need to organize to make sure we have better leaders in positions of power to fight back against that. Uh, Secretary Benson talked about uh, voter suppression, and that's something that when we started our careers at the ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center, fighting back about. Right, can we, can we stop there? First of all, the annoying up talking aside and the we started our career at the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU. What's that tell you, Byron York? <laughs> well, it tells you she's a progressive activist. Uh, yes. she, she did spend uh, uh, more than 10 years as the executive director of the ACLU, MCLU in Maine. Uh, so, I mean, it just tells you exactly where she is. And and the interesting thing about her, as opposed to the Secretary of State of Colorado, she just went ahead and just did it. And I, I think it – now, you're the lawyer here. I think that this complicates the Supreme Court's um, uh, job in the Colorado decision uh, because these were done – these Maine and Colorado, these were done in different ways. Um, and so it makes the game of uh, whack-a-mole that the Supreme Court uh, is involved in uh, more complicated than it was before. I don't know. Uh, isn't the um, 
uh, the deadline in Colorado for the Republican ballot is coming up quite quickly. Uh, the, the, the judge stayed the ruling in Colorado. So technically, the Supreme Court of the United States does not have to act because there's no imminent harm. But I believe it's having an immediate impact and that Trump's lawyers will file today for expedited review at the Supreme Court. And I would hope that the court moves rapidly, 9-0, to strike this. It's a silly argument. It's just the dumbest argument. I've, I have taught con law since 1996. The 14th Amendment is not self-executing. It has Section 5, which authorizes Congress to pass all laws necessary to um, apply the provision of that, which would include the insurrection provision. Trump was neither charged nor convicted of insurrection. It just is lawless. And I must say, Byron, what goes around comes around. If people play this game, the president's lawlessness with regards to the student loans, which has been adjudicated to the Supreme Court, could give a Republican secretary of state in the red state the right to do the same thing. You know, it could. And I, it, it's just a, it's a terrible path to go down. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's just really, really bad paths. And the Supreme Court is its, its job to keep us off them. Remember, there was a, a case in the whole election 2020 election controversy. I think it was filed in Texas. Um, where one state wanted to negate the election results in other states. You thought, this is a really bad idea. And the Supreme Court Court thought so, too. Um, And and they need to be clear and they need to be quick. So I'm hoping it's tomorrow. Let me go to um, Charlie Cook. You and I both respect Charlie's work. He's retired. He lives in Maine now. He was quoted by the Financial Times over the weekend, Byron, and I'm reading from my ex-account. Biden's approval ratings have been stubbornly negative for more than two years since the summer of late 21, Charlie Cook emphasized. Quote, there seems to be virtually no elasticity here, he said. I wonder if people have just changed the channel. They've just written him off. I think they have, Byron, because he is freaking old. And looking older uh, by the day, uh, look, look pretty old in his uh, New Year's message uh, with the First Lady as well. Uh, but, I, you know, I just think that uh, this train has basically left the station, and I do not see Democrats uh, waking up one morning and say, oh, gosh, we need a new presidential candidate. Um, it's just it, it's it's very, very rarely, rarely done, and I don't see any move to do it now. One of the things that Biden has done effectively um, is discourage any mainstream uh, uh, challenge to his candidacy. It is now 2024, and we don't have one. Um, so it would, by definition, be some sort of late, last-minute thing, and I don't think you're going to see it. I did wake up on January 1 and post this, Byron, on X. Happy New Year and welcome to 1968 all over again. The war in Gaza and all around Israel instead of Vietnam, but with high casualties and bloody scenes nightly in a Chicago convention convulsed by anti-war protests. The chaos and the crime this time linked to the border. A hapless president who bows out and leaves a VP with zero charisma in his place and who can't shed his, or in this case, her baggage. A returning and branded Republican nominee, but one who picks the 2020 equivalent of the 1952 Nixon and brings generational change into the arena, but with a 1968 Agnew-like ability to attack the left. And finally, a great silent majority who doesn't use X, but is sick to death of the media and its spin on everything from CRT and DEI to transgender men and women's sports, and with China playing the role of the Soviets. It's going to be a heck of a ride. What do you think? Well, um, I, some of that stuff is actually similar, and I, and I think people should read their history here. I think in 
1968, there were um, uh, Americans, really quite thoughtful Americans, who worried if the wheel was just not coming off the axle. Uh, and things were just really crazy crashing. But I will say, I don't think that the year as as we see it so far is like that. Uh, in 1968, there were 17,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. That's almost four times the number who died in the whole uh, Iraq war. Um, there was the assassination of the world's, of the nations and the world's leading civil rights leader, uh, there was the assassination of the uh, presumptive Democratic nominee for president. I mean, this was, you know, certainly uh, the, the, the King and the Kennedy assassinations came fairly close together. Given the backdrop of Vietnam after the second assassination, that, that's when I think uh, many Americans thought, my God, what what is happening? Can Can our country survive? So when you look at that and then you look at what we have right now, uh, I don't think there's a, a good comparison, thankfully. Um, but I, it, I, it doesn't promise to be a smooth year. I know that. Uh, I'm not going to the Chicago convention. I hereby declare. Uh, let me, Byron, then close by bouncing off of you the headline. Well, where the news might be. Come on. <laughs> I know. I just, I'd be I'm just. i not going down there. No. Uh, Washington Post today, my column. Uh, point number one. This, we got three great divides in the United States electorate. Irascibility versus infirmity. Some people are exhausted by Trump. He's the front runner. He's irascible. He's, you know, he's again, he's out there punching hard. And but many people are concerned about the president's infirmity. Second, national security. Trump, unpredictable. Um, deterrent. Uh, Joe Biden, appeasement weak. And the biggest divide is really Trump and how voters view him. Do you think that is going to improve? the way that voters view Donald Trump, given the way he posts on X, but he looked pretty good on New Year's Eve. Do you think it could change? Do you think, do I think Trump can change? No, that voters view of Trump can change. <laughs> well, first of all, I'll just answer my own question there. Of course, Trump cannot change. He's, he is what he is. Um, I think that, that the hope that Trump has uh, would be that uh, Americans remember his time in office um, the the good parts about his time in office and uh, forget the bad times about his time in office. And I think, you know, in this, remember this incredible article. It wasn't too long ago. Robert Kagan's Trump is going to be a dictator. Article. Yeah. On Trump's watch, there was no full-scale invasion of Ukraine, no major attack on Israel, no runaway inflation, no disastrous retreat from Afghanistan. It is hard to make the case for Trump unfit to anyone who does not already believe it. If you go, that exactly what I agree, exactly. And maybe people will say, I'd rather have a president who irritates me on Twitter than one who is not there physically. Byron York on X. Thank you, Byron. I'll be right back. America, America. Hugh Hewitt, joined by Pete Peterson, or is Pete with us? Hey, Pete, Down how are you? you? Oh, it's my video today. I was looking over to see if my box was lit up. How are you, Dean? I'm great. Uh, happy New Year from Malibu. Well, you know, you put a tie on. That's better than I do at this hour of the morning, Dean. Uh, Dean, I had dinner last night with four great Californians, four very successful West Siders. They're staying. I think they're out of their minds. Uh, they're paying a 13.5% California geography tax. How long can this state deal with that when they just opened Medicaid up to every illegal immigrant in the state? 
Well, you know, Hugh, for many years, uh, it was argued that California practiced what uh, Walter Russell Mead called the blue state model, that you would pay a lot in taxes, but you get a lot back in services. And I think what we've seen over the last few years, you were mentioning the homelessness issue before. You can talk about public safety. You can look at the condition of our roads and infrastructure, that that nexus has been broken, that people are paying a lot in taxes uh, certainly in energy as well, you know, taxes on gas and uh, taxes on uh, electricity. Uh, but we're not seeing that responded back in the quality of our schools, the quality of our roads, the quality of our public service. And certainly uh, over the last couple of years, especially with COVID, when there was a chance for people to leave the state between 2021 and 2022, we saw several hundred thousand people leaving the state of California I know you probably talked about the fact that most are predicting that in the 2030 census, we're going to lose between four and five congressional seats due to the decline in relative population. And so people are voting with their feet. Well, Dean, who is coming to your school? I still get great law students. I'm not teaching this semester. I teach every other spring semester at Chapman, but I'm only here until the primary on March 5th. I'm going back to Virginia. Who's coming to Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy? Because if you want an intractable public policy environment, that's here. You're going to learn how to deal with the hardest stuff. But, I mean, who wants to do that? Well, uh, importantly, we are continuing to offer a very unique graduate policy degree here. So we are getting students from outside the state, some who uh, really do believe that they're going to go back to either their home states or back to Washington, D.C., work in Capitol Hill. Uh, but because of the unique kind of graduate program that we offer here, uh, frankly, I think every Californian should spend at least a year in California to understand uh, how the other side thinks when it comes to public policy. But we also still have young people here in the state that want to be here for the turnaround. They want to be here uh, for the uh, for the change that I believe many see incoming that we are, as you said before, on an unsustainable path when it comes to public policy coming out of Sacramento and coming out of our major cities. And we do have a number of native Californians that are coming here because they want to be a part of that turnaround in our cities and our state. Uh, You know, Dean, I know you're nonpartisan, but I see Steve Garvey is in second place in the California primary for Senate. That would be a great boon if there was actually someone at the top of the ticket running as a Republican. Do you expect him to make it into the final two? Yeah, I do. Uh, certainly when you look at the Democratic side, it's one of those situations where even though it's a top two primary uh, down party lines, people are going to split the vote on the Democratic side, which provides an opportunity for the Republicans, especially a name uh, recognize Republican like a Steve Garvey to make it through. I think Republicans are, uh, we aren't, we haven't always been smart as a party. And I see that, say that as a registered Republican here in the state of California to clear the field. Uh, but I think we're doing that in the Senate race and, and certainly putting, uh, Steve Garvey forward as a lead Republican candidate gives him a great chance to get through the primary and onto a general in which there really should be a debate about the future of uh, both state policy and national policy. Last question, Dean Peterson. I mentioned the new California state law. Medicaid in California is now available to anyone 
No matter how long they've been here, they might have just walked over the California border on in uh, eastern San Diego County or come over from Arizona or Texas. How in the world does the state intend not only to pay for it, but to provide it? That That's 8 million people in three years. I don't know where they're going to go. Yeah, you know, Hugh, the immigration problem is becoming a much bigger problem for the Democrats. I, I'm sure you've covered the stories that the uh, Customs and Border Patrol are actually bringing over busloads of illegal immigrants and dumping them essentially on the streets of our cities in San Diego and Los Angeles and San Francisco. These are coming out of the Democratic administration. These are not being sent by red state governors. This is CBP dropping off people that the cities aren't even notified that they're coming in, much less being uh, having this guarantee now from the governor that we are going to provide these public services. I really do see that the, what we're seeing along class lines, along people in the lower and lower middle class that are here trying to make ends meet in California, seeing announcements like this, really saying to themselves that, why am I paying into taxes when I'm not getting back these services and they're going elsewhere? We're going to continue to check in on the Golden State or the once Golden State. Maybe we'll call it the OGC, the Old Guard Golden State, with Dean Pete Peterson every month. Pete4CA, Pete the number 4CA to follow him on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Thank you, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, Generalissimo. Off to another great year in 2024. I'll be back tomorrow, America, on the next You Do It show. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.